CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jaromsky Show for Friday, January 14th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, also eat, also drink, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. Chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's chicagoreader.com forward slash J-U-R. That's not correct. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, you're right. That's <laughs> J-A-R-A-V. That's not correct. Oh, that's also not correct? Really? Oh, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Friday, January 14th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show's Oh What a Week. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello, everybody. We're calling this Dems Have a Hope Friday, and here's why. Because just before I came on the air, while I was struggling with my computer, you don't want to know this, folks. It took my computer 12 minutes. I don't know what's going on with computers. I'm the producer, and I don't even want to know it. Uh, yeah, he's like, Ben, no one wants to hear about your computer troubles. Anyway, so while I was waiting for my computer to kick in, I saw an email from uh, John McDermott Jr. Johnny, I see you out there. I uh, haven't really had time to read the article, but the headline said it all. Dems may win gerrymandering battle. I'm like, yes, yes. In the battle to see who takes control of Congress and the battle who see who runs the government, Dems or MAGA. It all comes down to which one cheats the most in the map drawing. Let's face it, folks. That's what it's all about. It's like two baseball teams playing each other for the World Series. And the issue is which one will put more illegal substance on the ball than the other? Because in a perfect world, in an ideal world, we would just have bipartisan map making. We would not take in political considerations. But, of course, it's not a perfect world. It's not an ideal world. It's a savage world. It's dog-eat-dog. Dog. It's dog-eat-mouse. It's mousey-cat. Oh, my God. That's the, kind of world. <laughs> That's the kind of political world we're living in. So Republicans have been cheating for years? How does, a mouse, how, how, how does a mouse eat a cat? <laughs> I don't know. That's a savage oh. mouse. Oh. That's how a mouse eats a cat. Come here, cat. The cat sounds like the mouse sounds like a dog. Anyway. For years, Republicans are the maestros, the masters of this game. They've outfoxed the Democrats. Democrats are so confused. We're so confused. Democrats are so confused that in the state of Illinois, you have Dems going, no, we have an advantage, but I want to give it up because it's not right. <laughs> only, only Dems. Only Dems play that game. Senator Cinema in Arizona. I want everybody to get along. I'm for voting rights, but I only support it if Republicans support it. Okay. Like that's going to happen. Anyway. Johnny Mac sent me uh, this article, which I will read, uh, digest, and think about. 
Apparently, Democrats are doing such a good job throughout the country and gerrymandering Republicans out of existence that they may actually have a congressional advantage come the midterms in November. And maybe, maybe all our prognosticators have been coming on this show for the last couple of weeks saying there's no way the Democrats will win in November. Maybe they'll be wrong. So I'm ending the week with a little hopefulness. And I'll turn things over now to the man, myth, the legend, proud of Joy of Alton, Illinois, for Oh, What a Week. Can we say who our guests will be in Oh, What a Week? We're going to do something a little differently. Well, or are you going to? It'll be on the title of the show. So, you know, we want those we want those hits, baby. We got to put the name on there. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You, oh, you're good. You're this. Un, you're good. I'm De Niro. You're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> All right. Now, who did? Let's see if let's see if he knows this. Who did De Niro say that to? Uh, I don't know. Ben Stiller, Gaylord Fokker. <laughs> no, Billy Crystal. Uh, Get your movies. Dude. I think it was analyze this. Turn things over to man to meet the legend. Probably Joe Ball in Illinois. And we will not announce who our guests will be in about a half an hour or so. The man they called the marvelous. We do announce who we have on the show. How's it going, everybody? We have CTU Vice President Stacey Davis Gates coming on shortly to break down, well, the crazy week the CTU had. So with the little time we have, let's unpack the week that was statewide. It's time for a 2022 Illinois primary election candidate update. This is a 2022 Illinois primary election candidate update. All right, buddy. Updated that intro. You hear that? I mean, you were working all night and I appreciate it all night. Yes, we need to get our parties in order before the big dance in November. It's primary season and people in the span of just one week, things have went from kind of boring to somewhat interesting. First up, the Illinois Secretary of State primary has officially kicked off now for weeks. We have been following the campaign of Secretary of State hopeful one Alexi Janulius. And, well, in case you missed that coverage, here's the update. Every Democrat in Illinois is endorsing Alexi Janulius. On behalf of the great state of Illinois, let me express my deepest gratitude. Oh, that was very nice, Alexi. We had Luis Gutierrez, Bobby Rush. These endorsements are like water for this guy. Just keep flowing. For instance... Alexi Genulius picked up endorsements this week from Chicago Alderman Matt O'Shea, O'Shea's 19th Ward Democratic Organization and the Proviso Township Democratic Organization. My God, everyone loves this man. But hey, <laughs> not so fast, Genulius. On behalf of the great state of Illinois, let me express my deepest uh-huh. gratitude. Because it looks like you have some legit competition. Secretary of State candidate Anna Valencia is jumpstarting her campaign with the help of one of the state's most powerful political fundraisers. Is it the Ben Jarofsky show? Never! <laughs> it's Laura Ricketts. The <laughs> Ricketts family. Laura Ricketts, the Cubs co-owner, Democratic fundraiser, and a leader in the gay and lesbian community, has agreed to co-chair Valencia's <laughs> finance committee. Ricketts said in a statement to Playbook, quote, that's Shia Campos, Illinois Politico Playbook. She said, quote, there is far too much at stake this year for the Democratic Party that we must ensure we have the right candidate on the ballot in the general election. She said Valencia has a proven record and history of showing up for Democrats when it's mattered most. Valencia's campaign has about $1 million on hand and hopes Ricketts' influence will help ramp up fundraising and help build a statewide operation that can compete on the ground and 
the airwaves. And because it's simply how politics is these days, as soon as you get some good press, <laughs> you know what comes next. That's right, Damn. bad press. <laughs> A, re uh, a report by Crane's Greg Hines is ooh. great poker player, by the way. I almost, my New Year's resolution is to get him on this show. Great poker player, that guy. We could do a whole show on poker tips from Greg Hines. All right. I see where you're going here. I'm trying to get him on the show. A report by Greg Hines is raising questions about Anna Valencia's time as a city clerk and her email communications and whether she mm. tried to curry favor on behalf of the company that employs her husband. Hines reports that Valencia wrote or received more than 600 emails on her official Chicago City email account referencing her husband, one of his lobbyist clients, or both. He added that Valencia's office has so far, quote, refused to release copies of those emails. The response to the Freedom of Information Act request says the submission needs to be narrowed. Now, Illinois Politico did all the hard work here. I'm just talking about it. Playbook obtained a few separate emails through an ally of... Go figure. Alexi Janulius! <laughs> in many respects, uh, a lot of people uh, in this country what the heck? Uh, fear change. Those emails show how Valencia, while working in the mayor's office in 2016, connected a person in Monterey Security, which city officials for a board appointment and finagled an invite. Never hear that word enough. Finagled an That's invite to meet a dignitary in the mayor's office. A spokesman for Valencia calls Heinz's story a nothing burger. Love that word. Uh, take that, Greg Hines. Yeah. A spokesperson for Valencia's campaign said, oh, if if he's as good at writing as he is at playing poker, I wouldn't believe a word of it. No, just an inside I'm going to edit Greg that out because we've got him <laughs> so close, so close to a Greg Hines interview on this program. Don't go ruining it, Jarofsky. When Greg Hines was a very young man, I, and I, I at first, I was young, too. And I just moved to Chicago. We were in the same uh, poker game. And as I recall, uh, I was uh, taking his money left and right. That's just my recollection. He may have a different recollection. It's 40 years ago. Anyway, you know, I give Shia Kapos credit for this story, D. This is the part I'm going to pick up on. Because at least she's honest about who Fetter is. You know, reporters, you know, I love you, reporters. I've been one of you for all these years. Been a reporter. I'm talking like Barack Obama because we're talking about Alexi. But you guys, you get spoon fed stuff and then you act like, well, what was it? Uh, a crane's investigation show. No, a crane's handout. <laughs> That's all right. At least Shia Kapos, I give her a lot of credit. Where would we be without her, by the way, D? Well, we're so learned because we read Shia Kapos. Right. Uh, we'd be really struggling without you, Shia Kapos. She went on vacation at the end of December. Remember that, D? Hey, you're saying the quiet right? parts out loud, my friend. Oh, yeah. I'm not supposed to admit this stuff. Anyway, at least she admits that you're spoon fed. So that's what they do when you get an election season. Uh, I, I, they don't call me anymore. I, I don't miss these calls, but everybody tries to figure. Well, I think Ben would really hate J.B. Pritzker, so we'll call him about this. He used to get calls like this. Oh, yeah. Uh, ben, this is off the record, but J.B., what a lousy rat he is. I'm like, man, I'm not going to write your stuff. They're politically stereotyping you, man. Yeah, I know. He's a lefty. I did struggle with the J.B., but everybody knows it's true. And I vote for Danny Biss. Dennis makes fun of me to this day. And um, so I give her credit. It's a nasty campaign. Every little bit of dirt they're going to throw at each other. What Dennis didn't read in that same Shia Capo story is that Valencia threw a bunch of dirt at uh, Giannullius. 
dirt flying. And they're ignoring David Moore. All him into the 17th. Hey, he's that's that's our guy in the race. I mean, that's a slogan, too. Don't ignore David Moore. What are, well, what are they good. doing? I like David Moore. I know I'm a minority, but I like David Moore. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, so I, yes, it's a time of the year where consultants and strategists have all these off-the-record conversations with reporters and feed them dirt on the opposition. And the reporters, the toughest thing. They should teach you this in journalism school. How do you take a spoon-fed chunk of dirt and flip it around as though you did it on your own? That's a challenge, D. You know who's really good at it? The New York Post. They get fed all kinds of dirt about Democrats. And they always somehow or other make it seem as like a New York Post investigation discovered. Oh, you mean a handout for some Republican? Anyway, all these campaigns uh, have dirt diggers. I forget what they're called. There's a, there's like a whole industry of people who uh, do these background uh, dossiers on uh, their, their, the opposition. Dossier. Yeah, you like that word, huh? Yeah. Really like uh, that. So uh, anyway, yes, it's just the start, D. It's just the start. You're going to see so much dirt thrown. Because really, Genius uh, uh, wants to pretend as though he's running unopposed now. You know what I'm saying? Now that uh, Pat Dowell's out of the race and she endorsed him. So uh, he's got, now he's like, well, you know, I don't know. Any front runner does this in a, uh, in a primary race. I remember Rom doing it the first time around. He tried to do it the second time around in the mayoral race I'm talking about. It was like he was running against no one. I'm just, I will, I'll decide whether I attend this debate, you know. Oh, wait. Uh, I just got an email. Hold on a second. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> Greg Hines canceled. <laughs> we're pre-recording this. How does he even know we're doing uh, He's He's a visionary. <sighs> That's why he was so good at poker. <laughs> he could, like, see the cards, even though they were turned upside down. Oh. You got to know when to hold them. Sorry, dude. Oh, no, not a problem. And one more story about the Secretary of State primary race. If it wasn't spicy enough, the Libertarian Party of Illinois is running oh, a go. candidate for Secretary of State. And his name, no joke, is Jesse White. Not the current Secretary of State. This person's name's Jesse White. He's from downstate Illinois. He's never held elected office and was selected at the party's convention in October. I smell something fishy going on here. What about you, Ben? Oh, my goodness. Uh, this was in Rich Miller's uh, comedy shout out to Rich. He posted another article. I wish I could give the guy credit who actually did the, the story. Uh, and so um, the head of the Libertarian, this is my favorite part of the story, the head of the Libertarian Party in the state of Illinois, whose name I can't remember, so let's just pretend it's Billy Bob. Uh, Billy Bob said that it was just a coincidence <laughs> that the candidate they found to run uh, for Secretary of State has the same name as the incumbent who's held office for like 20 years and is perhaps the most popular politician in the state of Illinois. Just a coincidence. <laughs> like, you know, uh, oh, wow. Whoa. Isn't that just amazing how that happens? So, uh, yeah. Now this gets down to the issue question here, D. How dumb are Illinois voters? Okay, now be nice. This is an issue here. Now, this is very important. This, is very, this will be a true test. How many people will vote for the Libertarian candidate? Assuming that they're actually voting for Jesse White, the Democrat. 
the head of the the guy who ran the Jesse White tumblers, the guy who's been the Secretary of State for twenty years, the guy who uh, used to be a state rep on the north side of Chicago, the guy who used to be the Cook County Recorder of the Deeds, the guy who came up uh, in the Forty uh, Second Ward organization of George Dunn who used to teach gym at Jenner High, uh, Jenner Grammar School. Can you believe I know all this about Jesse White? Who used to play in the Chicago Cubs organization as an outfielder. How many people in the state of Illinois will see that name and just punch it? Clearly, the Libertarian Party has decided that the people of Illinois are not very bright. And they think a lot of people will do that and probably enough to uh, get a threshold number of votes that they need to uh, stay on the ballot or uh, be a re- legitimate party uh, in um treat it like a legitimate party that is uh, in the coming campaign seasons. That's their gamble. That's their bet. And you know, the Republicans are nervous because they may, (laughs) what happens if, well, no, it's like split. Like the political strategists can't make up their mind. Who's greater. Is this a greater threat to the Democrats because Democrat voters? (laughs) What do I do? Huh? Voters. You always give me grief because I make fun of you. For the stupid choices you make, but I have a higher estimation of you than the political chieftains and strategists who run this state. They think you're so dumb. The only issue is who will be the greater beneficiary of your ignorance, the Republicans or the Democrats? Because it could be that Democrats thinking it's Jesse White, the Democrat, end up voting libertarian which takes votes away from the Democratic Secretary of State candidate, whoever that is. And or it could be an issue where uh, more people vote for the Libertarian Party than would have ordinarily voted for the Republican Party because they like Jesse White. And I got to say, it's a very uh, interesting spot to be in for this downstate Jesse White guy, because your strategy here is to make sure people don't realize that you're another (laughs) Jesse White. So therefore, your strategy is do nothing. Yes. Do absolutely nothing. By the way, it would be my strategy if I were to run for any office. <laughs> yeah. I've told people, Ben, they go, you should run for something. I would vote for you. And <laughs> I go, if you nominate me, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to get up at 10 like I usually do. By the way, Stacey Davis Gates, she's funny. When I call her to do pre-show prep, she goes, awfully early for you. It was about 1030. Everybody's got jokes at my expense, D. So, all right, now let's get to the Illinois gubernatorial primary before we grab mm-hmm. Stacey Davis Gates. Is J.B. Pritzker still running? Yes. Does he still have like a gajillion dollars? Yes. So is he more than likely going to get reelected? Yes. But all of this, for some reason, is not stopping our Illinois Republican gubernatorial hopefuls from running. In fact, it looks like we have two, count them, two new Republican gubernatorial candidates that we need to add to our list. And God bless them. Before we do that, though, we have some updates on the fellers already running. Update number one, after Darren Bailey announced his lieutenant gubernatorial candidate, I guess the others figured they would do it too. Paul Schimpf, who, yes, is a Republican candidate for governor, for those who may have forgot. Schimpf named Carolyn Schofield as his lieutenant governor running mate. Schofield is a McHenry County board member and has run unsuccessfully for state rep. She's smart on property, property taxes, government consolidation, and mental health issues, which are likely to become a policy challenge in Illinois and across the country. And Palatine Township Republican committeeman Aaron Delmar is running as lieutenant 
lieutenant governor with gubernatorial candidate Gary Rabine. Delmar's father was an immigrant to the United States, and his mother, who grew up on Chicago's South Side, spent her career working as an emergency room nurse. Now, the best thing about Rabine's pick here is that Delmar has political experience, because I'm pretty sure Rabine only knows an absurd amount about parking lots. And I, I, I can only get you so far, you know? Delmar also serves as Palatine Township Highway Commissioner. He has held posts as Cook County Republican Party Chairman, Palatine Village Councilman, and was appointed by former Republican Governor uh, Bruce Rauner <laughs> to the Illinois International Port Authority. Ben Jarofsky, your thoughts? Well, guys, I know uh, this is now the new, uh, the new routine here. If you're a gubernatorial candidate, you quickly uh, pick a running mate. And so it acts as though you're already assuming you're going to win. Uh, and it also sort of like diversifies your base of support. But in reality, guys, Ray Bine, uh, Shrimp, Shemp, whatever your name is. Yes, Shrimp. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Stooges candidate, you guys aren't going to win. I hate to be the one to break you the news. You're not going to win. Kenny G's candidate's going to win. Or DB's going to win. Darren Bailey, big feller, downstate uh, farmer, who, by the way, this story just broke about DB. This is breaking news. I want to. All my, uh, my friends are sending me texts while I'm on the show with updates. Say this, say this. this is from Jim Coogan, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan. GOP candidate for governor Darren Bailey, get this D, got 231,475 federal paycheck loan in February. A month later, he gave his campaign $150,000. Wow. Good job, Chicago Tribune. I don't have time to read that. I'll get to it in a little while. Stacey Davis Gates has joined us, ladies and gentlemen. Stacey Davis Gates has joined us. I love it when my guests show up. Uh, but uh, anyway, so going back to the gubernatorial race, uh, Dennis, my opinion is this. Uh, the Republican primary will come down to a battle between whoever Kenny G supports, Ken Griffin with those millions, uh, and Darren Bailey, who's Mr. MAGA. And right now, unless Kenny G supports Darren Bailey, which I don't see happening, because why would he be dragging somebody into the race if he wasn't going to support Mr. MAGA? I think DB is going to win that. Unless Rob Bogoyevich jumps in the race, who's probably the most popular Republican in the state of Illinois. Uh, it's oh, what a week. And generally, we review the news, uh, just Dennis and myself. Uh, the big news, of course, in the city of Chicago has been the, uh, what do I call it? An impasse, a confrontation, a showdown, uh, a total waste of time, idiocy on display, whatever else you want to call it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, between our, the mayor of the city of Chicago and the teachers of the city of Chicago. Apparently, the mayor of the city of Chicago thought, hey, Things are boring right now. I know what I'll do. I'll wage war on the teachers because that's always been a popular tactic uh, for uh, centrists and right-wingers, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so anyway, I thought uh, reach out to our good friend, Stacy Davis-Gates, SDG, as we call her, uh, Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union. It's been a while since Stacy's been on the show. Stacy, welcome back, Cotter. Thank you. How are you doing, Grandpa? All right. <laughs> Uh, feeling all you know, Stacy thinks Stacy's got jokes. She calls me grandpa in this morning. No, I like, think it's wonderful. No, uh, the next generation being born into the world means that we can sustain the world. No, that's that, good. yeah, that's hope. I, I, I love being a grandpa, and as I may have told you already, uh, I'm already, already training that kid to play basketball. Like I did my daughters, like I do pretty much any kid I meet. Hey, if you play basketball, you want to try basketball? <laughs> um, 
so yes, uh, I am a grandpa uh, and proud of it and going to spend as much time as I can with my uh, children and my grandchildren to be. All right, Stacy. Um, it has been an insane week in my humble opinion. Uh, I wrote a column about it, so pretty much everybody know, and I've been talking about this for the last 10 days. I still don't understand why a COVID pandemic would result in what amounts to collective bargaining negotiations. I think that's a sign of utter insanity in the city of Chicago that absolutely everything that the teachers were asking the public schools to do was not automatically granted by the public school leaders themselves. And I'll just give you two examples. One, masks, two, testings. So as I read the stories in the paper, Stacey, and correct me if I misread them, because you were in negotiations. As I read the stories in the paper, Pedro Martinez, who's the head of the Chicago Public Schools, when confronted by the Chicago Teachers Union's negotiators over the issue of masks in the schools, and I got a lot of friends who teachers are teachers in the school states, and they tell me their schools don't have masks. When he was confronted with that reality, he said, no need to worry, we'll get you the masks. To which I said, why weren't the masks there in September? Why are teachers negotiating over masks? And by the way, what's the counter negotiation? Just think about this, Stacey. Like, if you're in a negotiation over masks in public schools, what are you negotiating? Like, the teachers union are saying, we want 100 masks. And this board says, well, we'll give you 50. You get what I'm saying, Stacey? Like, how do you negotiate over masks? I don't think people will ever understand how parts of my heart um, became hardened um, for the last couple of years because of the very prospect of having the responsibility of being at that table. Um, I have never felt so (sighs) depressed over the current state of humanity when we had to actually sit at a table and argue with them that we had, there are so many points where I literally had to turn my camera off and say, this cannot be real life. Um, There were several times last year, because see, that's what I think people have forgotten, that this has been a thing for the last couple of years. And last year was about which set of pre-existing conditions are more severe than others? Is lupus a lesser priority than a cancer patient? Is a cancer patient a lesser priority than um, a pregnant and or nursing mother, right? Those were the issues on the table. And then this year, the mask, right? Um, Well, kids don't like those. Okay, you could very well be right about kids not liking the N95 um, face coverings. You can. And it is a fact that your duty is to provide an offering of them. Um, A couple of other reflections. One, the law firm that the mayor uses for her labor negotiations in the city, they also represent other school districts in the state 
Evanston, Champaign, um, just to name two off the top of my head. Um, and all of what we were asking for is a part of those agreements in both of those places, which is interesting, right? Because the client is who gets to inform the strategy, the process, the must-haves, the the guidelines and so forth. And so you see this law firm making um, policies within other school districts that look like the demands that we have, but yet we can't have them here in Chicago. I think here's the other thing that was also apparent. That bargaining table, the mayor's um, filter lens, if you will, for bargaining is not through the 90% of parents of colors, but it is focused on the less than 10% um, of white parents who send their children to the Chicago public schools. And people will take offense to this statement, I'm sure. And it is the truth that the needs of the overwhelming majority of the students who live in Chicago were secondary. And I could never understand why you had to split the baby. I think that mitigations help every school community. The difficulty with that is, is that they have under-resourced schools and communities of color so terribly that to do mitigations means that you are going to focus a lot of attention in communities of color because they have been disinvested in and under-resourced for so long that the infrastructure in many of these school communities require more. And they were, uh, they have been unwilling to do it to resource them appropriately without a struggle. Um, today, you see the young people, high school students are walking out of their school communities and good for them for saying that the union doesn't speak for me Lori Lightfoot doesn't speak for me, and we speak for ourselves. We can tell you the experience that we had on remote. We can tell you the experience that we're having through COVID. We can tell you the experience that we're having in understaffed school communities because people are sick. And we can do it in the most authentic way because one, we don't have a damn filter, right? Teaching a high school and find out. <laughs> Two, we're having a real experience. And three, why is this discussion going on without us? Like when I, I reflect on these things a lot, and that was a failure. That has been a failure. Um, you know, Karen used to talk a lot about, I want to say it's Montgomery County out in, um, what is it, Virginia? Or yeah. is it Maryland? Maryland. Maryland. It, I know it's the, um, the D.C. metro area, but it's Maryland. And they have, they've set up a negotiating space that includes all of the stakeholders. And 10 years ago, Karen said that that is the direction that we need to move into because our district is so varied. Our district has so many different needs that unless the people who are impacted by policy are there, those needs will remain invisible. She's right. She's still right. 
Uh, the Karen uh, that Stacey Davis Gates is alluding to, of course, is the great Karen Lewis, uh, who was the uh, president of the teachers union, died last year. Uh, all right. Let's go back uh, to what you were saying about the negotiators for the board. I'm going to sort of repeat this. I hope all my listeners just really listen to what I'm saying one more time. Uh, and that law firm that negotiates on behalf of Chicago Public Schools with dealing with the union is also employed by Evanston, my beloved Evanston, my hometown. I went to Evanston High School. And um, so when I uh, was con- following what was going on in Chicago, Stacy, I turned some friends of mine who live in Evanston. I haven't lived there since the 70s, but I turned some friends of mine who lived in Evanston and asked, how are they dealing with it? And I was told that the protocols that they're, uh, Evanston is following absolutely light years beyond anything Chicago Public Schools was doing. Kid walks to the school. There's someone there. He takes his temperature, Stacy. Takes the temperature. Just like, just as a first indication. Well, if the kid has a fever, he may have, co- that may be a telltale sign. If the kid forgets his mask, they have masks at the door. And not like these bootleg masks that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the kind of mask you see lying on the ground when you're walking down the sidewalk. Like they had the top notch masks. And they're masks in every classroom. And they do testing. They don't ask parents, oh, can we have your permission to test a kid? If you don't want your kid tested, you have to tell Evanston you don't want your kid tested. Now, these are things that Evanston implemented without a negotiations with its teachers. They just did it because the parents expected it and they had an entitlement. They have a very strong entitlement, Evanston. So, Stacy, my question is this. At any point during the negotiations, does anybody reflect on the utter absurdity that you've reduced the battle against a pandemic to a union employer negotiations, and you're just not following the path set by Evanston's of the world. Does that ever go ahead? Well, that is the problem. When I sit in negotiations and I think about what has been done in other places, I think, well, you don't give a damn about my kids. You can't. Because everything that we were asking for, that, that, that is the duty of the employer. That is the duty of the district responsible for the education of hundreds of thousands of children, young people, pardon me. Um, that, that is their duty. And so this whole concept that we got to put this at a negotiating table, it's infuriating, it is offensive, And it sets up winners and losers because that is how it happens at the table. I had a young person ask me, if it doesn't work, why do you keep doing it? And I was like, I've been on pause since she said that. I've been really reflecting since she said that this the way collective bargaining has happened with the Chicago public schools and the Chicago teachers union for a generation has been absolutely dysfunctional. It doesn't serve the purpose of securing and advancing the type of justice and equity we need to see in our school communities. What it has done is that it has advanced some things, but not without a massive struggle, right? not without massive disruption, not without massive um, back and forth. 
And why do we have to fight about having a nurse in every school, especially since we're in the middle of a pandemic and lo and behold, you damn need a nurse in every school. Right. But that was a literal fight. You can go back. History is not going to judge the mayor and her team. Well, I, I can guarantee you when people look back at history, that it is going to be a hot mess the way in which those first person documents um, come across in those history classes. And I know because I've taught history before. I've taught history before where you see power rejecting and, and, and being resistant to the needs of humanity. We've seen it with the abolition movement um, with respect to enslaved Africans. We've witnessed it with the suffrage of um, for women. We've witnessed it during the Jim Crow era that dovetailed into the civil rights movement. We've witnessed it with Occupy Wall Street. We've witnessed it throughout history um, at different intervals with uh, the labor movement. And so I know what this is going to look like ultimately, and they are doubling down on dumb. Um, all right. The mayor said something. I'm going to get in a little specifics and the mayor's, uh, uh, health commissioner, uh, repeated it uh, throughout. Uh, and they kept saying over and over that the safest place to be, be at the public schools. I'm going to, refrain from uh, going off on my uh, rant on that because it sure seemed to me uh, Stacy that's a uh, a political statement and it's trying to fit what's happening in Chicago literally in terms of whether there's proper protections for people coming into public school buildings uh, or whether uh, we're following a common sense policy that will protect people from a potentially very dangerous disease. So those very specific questions, instead of addressing those, you're taking the situation and putting it into a larger political narrative that's uh, to a large degree shaped by political strategists in Washington, D.C. as they try to figure out what's the best way for the Democratic Party to go into the midterms with dealing with COVID. And I find that so exceedingly frustrating that the students, the teachers, and the people of the city of Chicago are like pieces on a chessboard in this larger political game. You know, this notion that we must keep the schools open at all times or we're really damaging the kids, whether or not we have proper safety protocols or not. So I need to ask you this. Do you feel that what has gone down for the last two weeks or so in the city of Chicago is an attempt to sort of fit the Chicago story into this larger political narrative to make it seem as though Democrats are on the quote unquote right side of the issue of keeping schools open? Go ahead. Um, yes, and um, I think that the right wing has been given carte blanche to um, win the argument because Democrats don't regard their base in real life after they win. 
Everyone knows through all of the polling for the last two years, which continues to remain consistent, by the way, that families of color are more reluctant to send their children back into the school communities because they recognize the lack of mitigations that are implemented. And you are asking people to suspend an experience that they've been having with their school district for years. You are asking people to suspend the relationship that they've been having to institutional racism, white supremacy, and patriarchy to now suddenly trust them to have their best interest at heart and their children's best interest at heart. But these are the same people, by the way, that depend on my vote as a black woman to win, but will take the word of right-wing, well-funded right-wing activism. If you did a Venn diagram of the, quote, parents who reject CRT and the open schools parents, it's, it, there's, it's flat. It's one circle. You know what I'm saying? And so you have Democrats out here um, feeling away. But I'm also going to be critical of our movement, too, in this moment. Teachers unions, with the exception of a few, have dodged this fight and have given the freak shows unfettered control of the narrative. So now you have people who don't vote Republican saying Republican talking points without flinching, right? These are the same people who believe the open schools movement, this anti-CRT, are the same people who believe that I don't have a right to an abortion. But can you tell white moms in the suburbs that who believe in abortion rights? Can you tell white moms in the suburbs that these are the same people who want to maintain separate and unequal workplaces and pay you um, a fraction of what white men are making? So if these people are wrong about my reproductive rights, if these people are wrong about my rights in the workplace, but suddenly they're right about open schools and CRT, then you have to start examining your politics a little more closely and being discerning of those forces. That's the part that I think our movement has to get better at. We have to get better at helping people connect the dots and being unapologetic. Just because someone doesn't agree with me doesn't mean that I'm my mind has changed or that my voice becomes um, less heard. <laughs> it means you disagree. And that may not that might not be a concrete disagreement. That might be a disagreement because we haven't been able to have a discussion. That might be a disagreement because you don't know what I know or I don't know what you know. Right. And so give give ourselves a chance to be a part of the ongoing debate. I don't believe in taking my values and going into my home and locking the door and living my values in my own four walls, because at some point, these three black kids that live here, I've got to go out. And so it is my responsibility to advance these values, to amplify these values, and to uh, be uncomfortable sometimes with these values, right? 
I'm around parents all the time. And I know that they don't always agree with um, the presentation of the union that I help to lead. I know that they don't always agree with me saying that black children have gotten black children and brown children and low income and children who come from low income environments have gotten short shrifted in the Chicago public schools. Right. Because their experience might be different. Brother Brandon Johnson has, has said it better than most. He says it's raining over here. It may not be raining where you are, but it's raining over here. And you can't you can't get mad at me for figuring. Understanding that it's raining just because it's nice and sunny where you are. It doesn't mean that it's nice and sunny where I am. And that is fundamentally a part of the discussion that the media has helped to foment, right? You have the New York Times. The only now in all of New York, the only people you can find is white women. <laughs> no, but think about that for a minute, man. Like yeah. New York has got to be the most cosmopolitan yeah. place that I and I'm not just talking about regular southern black people migrating to New York, right? I'm yeah. talking about black people from the continent of Africa, from um, the islands. You know what I'm saying? Like black from everywhere. I'm talking about I'm talking about people from everywhere. And the only far people you find live in Manhattan and are white women. That's ridiculous. And they need to be they need to be ashamed of that. This whole concept that. You know, people were forced to grapple with the George Floyd situation and immediately fell into press releases, resolutions and proclamations that they were going to do better. But when faced with doing better, they go back to doing dumb. Right. You know, the New York Times said it. Yeah. And come on. You got to talk to more people. All right. Uh, You've given me a lot of follow up stuff. Um so I have to decide, do I go to the union or do I go uh, to uh, uh, white parents interviewed in newspapers? I'll go with white parents interview with newspapers. Because <laughs> you want to cause problems. Uh, <laughs> well, I could cause I could cause big problems with the union question, too, Stacey. Yeah. Uh, uh, Maybe. Be, uh, because uh, I'll, I'll flip it then. No, no. Uh, I'll, I'll get to the white people. Well, it, here's the it. thing. Uh, I, I've been unabashedly pro teachers my whole life. And everybody goes, Ben, you're only for the teachers union because they support your show. They help fund your show. And I laugh when they say it, Stacy, because I've been doing these things before you or Jesse Sharky were we born. Well, that's why we don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> we want to take away the conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah, that's why they don't do it. It took a, very, a long time. But I'm serious. So I, th- this is where I come from. And I come from this because my mother was a school. I told you this every time, you know, so many times you're probably sick of hearing it, but I've heard these stories since I was a little kid at the dinner table. All right. So this is how I'm wired. This is how I'm wired. And it's always been a system that's preyed on its teachers. It's like a quasi military system, but very similar to the post office. I know a little bit about from having worked there and, just top down, shut up and do what you're supposed to do. And even if what you're, we're asking you to do today is different than what we asked you to do yesterday. All right. That's the Chicago public schools. And that has always been uh, the Chicago public schools. 
So, but I live in a world where most of the people around me, it seems like, can't stand the teachers union. I live on the north side of Chicago. And every time you go to I open up a newspaper, it seems like when there's a contentious situation between the Chicago Teachers Union and the public schools, it may, be it the Tribune, be it the Sun-Times, be it Block Club, they seem to find a white parent who says he or she is about to go to Evanston, which I always love because Evanston's got <laughs> the stuff that the teachers union is fighting for. But put that aside. I've seen that so many times that I have come to this conclusion that white people on the North side hate the teachers union. And I guess got to apologize to the white people on the North side. I've been, I think I told you this, Stacey, going around just spontaneously asking Various people that I see. Hey, what, what's your take on this? And to my amazement, and again, this is not a scientific survey, Stacy. It's just me talking to random to my random people. My amazement is they're like madder at Lori Lightfoot than they are at Stacy Davis Gates, <laughs> which stunned I, I don't me. Know that's a good benchmark. <laughs> And I used to have these debates back in the day with Karen Lewis. Oh, did I get grief for loving Karen Lewis? I unabashedly love Karen Lewis. So, Stacy, maybe we're being unfair. Or maybe I'm speaking for myself, not for you. Maybe there's more consensus than we realize than is actually depicted by random quotes without from outraged white parents who are declaring they're either going to go to the Catholic schools go to a suburban school or go to a private school. Your thoughts. Let me like clarify and and make very clear. I'm not mad at white parents for drawing a line in the sand and being clear about what their children need. Not at all. Like literally my job is to love, care for, provide and make a way for the three that I've given birth to. That that's fundamentally my role. And I think white parents, especially the ones on the north side, their ability to make their demands known, to clarify them and to be steadfast, you know, in solidarity with what they need is the thing. What pisses me off is that the institution won't have doesn't have fights against an equitable way of balancing the interests of all children who are in the Chicago public schools. Listen, I'm a fight for my kids just like they fight for theirs. I'm not mad at that. I am mad at what becomes of it when they don't see a counter or the same on the South side or the West side because the institution or the leadership doesn't see it or hear it in the same way, they make an assumption that it doesn't exist. They make an assumption that um, they don't have to prioritize or work towards equity for those communities because they don't hear it and see it in the same way that they do on the North side. And I think that that is the most fatal mistake of all of this. The parents on the north side are doing what they're supposed to do. We believe, we think, we want, we need. What's wrong with that? This is a democracy. They are supposed to do that. 
and as stewards of a representative democracy, as a steward of the representative democracy, our mayor is supposed to hear them and also hear the other side. However, non-amplified it is, it's still there. Mm. It still exists. The leadership of this city has kowtowed because they hear one, they see one, and they and that is represented as power to them. They don't see and hear power from black parents or brown parents or parents who are, you know, working class in the same way that they see the parents on the north side. That is the flaw of leadership. That's not the flaw of parents. All right. Uh, I'm with you on that one. And I was caught off guard by the amount of support that I think is out there. Uh, I wouldn't say it's for the union, uh, but it's. Well, that's also, no, I'm going to challenge that. I think what people are seeing is that the union is full of the teachers that they love so much. We don't have a union of over 20,000 people almost, you know, going, you know, um, towards uh, 30,000 without the, the teachers you love so much. That's why this is that's why some of their arguments detractors, the mayor. It's so ridiculous to me. The union leadership. You talking about the whole House of Delegates? Because <laughs> I don't get to do anything without them. You talking about the e-board that gives us a hard time? You know what I'm saying? Are you? And rightfully so. Like, the democracy that we have in the Chicago Teachers Union is not practiced anywhere in this country the way it's practiced in the Chicago Teachers Union. Not anywhere else. And so this whole concept of her talking points, trying to make it about the four officers she gets proven wrong every time because it ain't the four. If it was the four officers, then no one would know us. Uh, By the way, she got that line. I'll tell you where the first person I heard say uh, that line in Chicago is Alderman Proco Joe Moreno, who's no longer an alderman. He was the alderman of the first ward. I remember in the middle of the 2012 teacher strike. Oh, Fox News. Yes. You remember that? He goes, I I love teachers. I just don't like their union. (laughs) I'm like, hey, man, it's a union of teachers. Duh. Well, I hope he needs to be healthier. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, You you said something. uh, I wrote it down. I can't read my writing. (laughs) Uh, Let's see if I can decipher my scrawl. A teacher's union deserve uh, dodge this fight. Oh, that's what you said. I wrote. uh, That's what I wrote down. And let's go back to that uh, Mm -hmm. concept. And I'm going to push back on you a little bit. You know, you very challenging and difficult for a union to advance the cause of people who are not in the union. And so I'll explain what I mean and get your response. Like when you guys went on strike and the issue was hiring more nurses, that did not put more money in a teacher's pocketbook or bank account. That did not help that teacher's family per se directly. That helped kids. It also helped people who got jobs at nurses, but really you're asking your members to take a stand for somebody other than themselves. And that traditionally has not been a cause advocated by unions. I remember the fights in the teachers union, uh, Stacy, back in the day when Deborah Lynch, who was an old, she ran for union president years ago, was advocating curriculum changes. 
and that the teachers have a say in curriculum. And I remember people, union, uh, her opponents in the union saying, hey, you should go be a college professor. We're all about bread and butter issues, putting money in our pockets, pensions, et cetera, and so forth. So when Karen created the model that you and Jesse Sharkey and the rest of your, uh, your allies are following, you kind of broke the model for unions. Go ahead. Well, here's the thing. As a classroom teacher, um, it was extraordinarily hard to shut the door and act as if young people didn't bring their lived experiences into the school community. I couldn't do that. And schools were being shut down. You remember Arnie Duncan? How many schools did he close? And then how many did Paul Vallis close? How many did Rom close? You understand my point? And they closed them because of test scores. Well, then here's the thing about test scores. You're, you're giving me an instrument that is grounded in the eugenics movement, which means it's going to be inherently unfair to anyone who isn't white, male, and middle class, or upper middle class, or rich, right? And because of that, Entire school communities are being closed. Entire school communities are. And all of the people who are living in those school communities are being, um, all of the people there are being fired. And you know who worked in black schools? Black people. So you are crashing the economy because we're unemployed. You are closing a public good that we can't send our anyone in our family to. And then you are expecting teachers to just negotiate on wages and benefits. And they were because that's what they did in the law. They changed the law to make it harder for us to negotiate beyond wages and benefits. Mm-hmm. So this whole situation begets itself. So if you're going to try to get out of a situation and recognize why you're in the situation, what you have to do is assess the landscape. And what we did was assess appropriately that you can't win a teacher's contract. You got to win justice. You got to win equity. And, and, and you can start that by like unpacking what's happening in your school community. I think it is ridiculous on the face of it to think about Arnie Duncan's baby, Renaissance 2010, And think about how it was absent from a focus on affordable housing, not mixed income developments, right? We're only like 20% is, you know, uh, on a, like a quote, low income working class budget, but you're closing schools and saying that I'm going to offer you something better, but can you offer me a job too? Like (laughs) the parents, Something that has like health care, the ability to pay rent or how about this, become a homeowner? You know, all of those things are critically important to how um, it works. Ultimately, when they point out all of these blue ribbon schools across the country, you have to also look at how much money is being made in those communities. What is the unemployment rate in those communities? What is the um, uh, what are the percentages of homeless families or house families without homes in that area? Those are also things that you have to say out loud. And, and I think that that's what we have 
done a pretty decent job at advancing. But what it also unintended consequence is that it makes everyone else uncomfortable who's actually in charge of making sure that those things work. So you get a mayor, a manual, and um, this new one, uh, Lightfoot, that, that are uber defensive. You get um, a space of other labor who's looking at your radical behavior and hoping that no one will come by their space and say, hey, why ain't we doing that, right? And thank God for SEIU 73 and Diane Palmer's leadership because it has been badass since she's, you know, come to Chicago. They do not shrink. They are visible and amplified. Do you hear me? Mm. And, 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 and thank God for those members in our school communities, too. You know that during this action, their members took zero days because they didn't want to come to work, you know, during the action. Their members um, use uh, benefit days because they wanted to be in solidarity. And these people don't make the money that teachers make. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just I just uh, I got to ask this. They're not going to pay the teachers for the four days. Um, They're going to (laughs) survey a whole bunch of people to ask if teachers deserve the pay. Look, I'm not as listen. I'm pissed off about it. Let me let me clarify that because I think it's ridiculous. So I'm I'm pissy about it. And I feel confident that our claim for those days because we were locked out, you're not supposed to lock us out. We're we're in a contract. We're not working without a contract. We're working with a contract. You can't lock us out. There's a no lockout provision in our agreement. Wait, hold it, hold it. Before we, I don't want to get in the legal land. I want to deal with something here. Go for the, it. Students did not have class for four days, correct? Because one, the teachers passed a resolution saying it was too dangerous to go into the schools, so we're going to do it remotely. But two, uh, the mayor and the people that run the Board of Education closed down this teacher's access to the computers. So there was no remote education. So for four days, what I heard over and over again is that there was no school, correct? It's no school, not even for the students who were in the virtual academy that was sanctioned to be virtual. They shut that access off as well, which is really twisted and weird. We'll get into that one later, maybe. All right. So there's no school at the same time. What I heard from over and over from every centrist I know, every MAGA person I know, the mayor of the city of Chicago, the health commissioner, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Nate Silver, everybody said it's absolutely fundamental that every child spends every possible day in the classroom. So we lost four days. You're telling me that the mayor's city of Chicago is not voluntarily demanding that those four days be made up? I thought every day in a classroom was absolutely essential. What am I missing here? Because You're missing the fact that the mayor believes that this is a power struggle. She has a different lens for what is happening in this moment. And I think that my analysis was um, proven yesterday when she sent uh, an email e-blast solicitation to her, to the contributors to her, uh, her pack for her campaign. She sees this as beating CTU. It is sick. It is dangerous. It is besides the point and utterly ridiculous that she saw. And I want to make this plain. 
making sure that students and staff got face coverings and testing as a power struggle with the labor union. It's ridiculous because this is a labor town and every time somebody brings up labor, she, she goes on about the people in her family. It's ridiculous because she is the steward of the school district and she is in full control. The employer is responsible for the infrastructure of safety in the workplace. The school district is responsible for safety at the school level. Those are the arguments they made when the kids said, get the cops out of the schools. Remember? Yes. Remember? So, you know, you can't have it both ways. It's either one way or the other. (laughs) And ain't no nuance to that one. Look, I'm with you. I can live in gray area. I can see different shades of. And in this one, not so much. Well, I, I just don't understand how kids can lose four days of classrooms and that, uh, classes and then not have it made up. So if so, the issue, if they're not going to pay the teachers, then they're not making up the time. So it's completely contradicting their assertion that every moment in the classroom is precious and cannot be wasted. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? I just so uh, that's the part that just shake my head. They go now they're negotiating over the four days. So what are they going to want you to do work for nothing? All right, we'll have the kids come back to school, but we're not going to pay the teachers. That's the absurdity of where they're at. Do you follow me, Stacey? I follow you completely. This is, she believes, listen, when she says, I will not relent, if people do not see that as a declaration of aggression, when people only want to be safe, it is a complete, it is a failure of her leadership in this moment. Like, look, I don't regret saying, A, that she is unfit to lead this city. I think we are experiencing that. I do not regret saying that she is on a one-woman kamikaze mission to destroy the public schools. The evidence is clear. All right. Um, I was going to ask you about that, and you, and you mentioned it. Uh, strong uh, rhetoric, strong words. I remember when you said, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Stacy's channeling her inner Karen Lewis on that one. Because uh, you remember Karen calling Rom the murder mayor. Did she lie? Her. What's that? Did she lie? No. No, she didn't. But it blew everybody's minds because nobody had ever confronted, no person of power had ever confronted the mayor like that before. Particularly Mayor Rahm. And you know, um, <laughs> which brings me to um, another like thing that is a bit underneath my skin. You have black men in the black caucus of the city council submit an op-ed to the Chicago Sun-Times um, taking um, our president to task for, you know, saying something about Lori that I'm sure they've said many a times, right? But he said it publicly, I understand. And they are saying that black women in the city are under attack, you know, and made a whole point out of their defense of black women. And, you know, I I looked at that for a minute and I just stopped reading it because, you know, Ben, I don't know if you know this or not. I'm a black woman. And then I don't know if you know it either. Karen Lewis was a black woman. And I remember Rom cussing her out. And I don't and I still cannot find a letter to the editor an email message, a Facebook direct message, a Facebook post, a tweet, nothing when he cussed her out. 
Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? And if I'm not mistaken too, Karen died a black woman. A black woman. She lived a black woman. She led as a black woman. And I and all of them, if not the overwhelming majority of them, were in office at the time. So I'm trying to wonder, and I know you ain't gonna get into this because this is race politics, and, and I respect that. But I'm trying to decide how hard they went into paying for Anjanette Young. Think about that. I remember Stephanie Coleman. I remember Jeanette Taylor. I remember Maria Haddon. I remember Sophia King. But I can't remember the brothers on the front line for that sister. I, I, I Now, they may have been outraged. They may have felt the way. But where was that letter? Right? Because all of the evidence is coming out that the black woman who's in charge of the city saw the video and understood what happened to the black woman who was naked and humiliated in her own house, which was also the black woman who confronted another black woman on the floor of the city council about challenging her, right? So is this about a continued hate train on CTU or is this really about protecting black women? Because there are tons of black women who work in the Chicago public schools there are tons of black women who are sending their children to Chicago public schools. So this selectivity over who gets cover from them is in question. And maybe I'll call one of them or text them and ask them, am I eligible for their support too? You can uh, question. The all, no, I will now read you uh, the, uh, the alderman uh, that Stacey Davis Gates, uh, Stacey just alluded to. This is a, they wrote an essay for the, the Sun-Times ran it today, Sun-Times, Time to End Disrespect Toward High-Profile Black Women Leaders. Uh, and it's uh, uh, Roderick Sawyer from the 6th Ward, Gregory Mitchell from the 7th Ward, David Moore uh, from the 17th Ward, Derek Curtis, uh, Howard Brookins, Michael Scott, Walter Burnett, Jason Irvin, and Chris Taliaferro. So the United is one. Uh, and uh, as soon as Jesse said that, Jesse Sharkey being the man who said it, he called it relentlessly stupid. I'm going, oh, Jesse, no, man, no, no, no. As soon as he said it, Stacy, because I knew. <laughs> I knew where they were going to go with it. And, and you're absolutely correct. I will say this again. The Chicago Teachers Union went on strike to hire more nurses. And really, it was going to help black schools, poor black schools that are overlooked in neighborhoods that are losing population. They went on strike, ladies and gentlemen. And you're right, Stacy. I didn't see anybody of these any of these letter writers thanking the Chicago Teachers Union. Or how about that. this? 60% of the 20,000 that are homeless within the Chicago public schools, houseless, without homes, our, our children are black. Like I got a lot of people who are black that they can write letters about and advocate for. But to like center your advocacy just around that one out loud for everyone to see, Seems like you're making another point because I, I know I'm black and you should check the mentions on my Twitter and on my Facebook. I know I'm black and you should see the emails, the nasty ones that I get from certain people in certain places. And I'm black and I haven't heard that or the trash editorial opinion piece, um, bad take that was even published that if two black women cannot agree 
on the same thing at the same time all the time that we are going to destroy uh, no not destroy ruin chicago you, you understand what i'm saying what was their defense of black leadership black female leadership that can be different that can think differently or lead differently right the whole point of you know post-racial society is that we ain't a monolith yeah you're now you're alluding to an essay there rebecca side wrote it was again in the sun times uh it was an open appeal to uh ain't that a labor paper uh, yeah, it's owned by uh, a lot of unions. Uh, uh-huh. Well, they that way time out. I guess the they union. don't have editorial control. Let me yes. let me go back to the facts. <laughs> those the facts that they don't have editorial control. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sh- sh- yes, they do not. Uh, but I don't. Uh, let me re re uh, rewrite what I said. <laughs> I just saw Robin Williams do that at the Richard Pryor Pro Toast. He misspoke, and then he went. Well, let me just change that. <laughs> anyway, um, that's rewinding the tape. Uh, I don't think they're not owned by the unions, but the unions, uh, when the Sun-Times was on the rope, came forward with money to help them. So I'm not quite sure if they technically own, if, if SEIU owns the Sun-Times. you follow what I'm saying, Stacey? So I uh, correct myself there. Um, but there was an essay in the Sun-Times. Rebecca Sy was appealing to uh, Stacey uh, and uh, uh, Mayor Lightfoot to put aside their differences for the good of the city. And... Um, and then said something in there I just want to correct right now uh, that even Karen Lewis and Rahm Emanuel put aside the dip. Karen Lewis, that that's how trash the editorial was, yeah. right? That is how trash it is. Rahm sending a sick woman some soup means that he's human. That's it. It doesn't mean that they agree. And then here's the other thing, like this revisionist history that's happening in this moment about who Karen was, baby, bye. I was there. I was there. I know how it hurt Karen's heart. I know what people said about her. I know from whence her strength came and where the dictate the, the 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 those who you know thought differently and and what they said and how they said it. She wasn't beloved by a certain segment she was, but another segment she wasn't. This whole like question of like people were giving good headlines when Karen was leading please uh yeah no um that's one one of my favorite topics uh karen lewis when she was alive was openly despised by many people in the city of chicago powerful people in the city of chicago and uh i used to get a lot of it i know exactly what people said about karen lewis and it was really personal a lot of it had to do with her weight and so now uh, Karen Lewis, after Karen Lewis died, everybody rewrote the, their own history <laughs> to make it seem like they were with her. And they weren't with her. And nobody in power in the city of Chicago, Stacey, has ever stood with the teachers when they went on strike. I mean, I can count on it. 2012, Jesse Jackson. You know, I know the aldermen who got on stage with you guys at the auditorium. I know who they were. I give theoretic credit to this day for doing that. You know, Waggus Back was there. Uh, Nick Spazzato stood with the teachers. I don't know what's happened to Nick in the last 10 years, but I give him credit for being there in 2012. And you're right. None of these letter writers wrote a letter when Rom said, F you, Lewis. In None fact, of them wrote a letter. On, in fact, Ben, when we went on strike, 
They wrote the opposite letter and signed that. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them. So, you know, whatever. It's it ain't supposed to be politics and it's very clearly politics. Well, let's talk about a little bit uh while you it, while we're on it. We had this conversation, not you literally, but uh, Jeanette Taylor was on the show. She comes on all the time. JT, uh, Alderman of the 20th, Alderwoman. Don't you Jeanette. love Jeanette? Yes. Alderwoman of the 20th Ward. Everybody knows I love her. Um, when Lori Lightfoot got off the podium and walked and got in her face and wagged her finger at her over the whole issue of uh, and Jeanette Young and the defer and publish that Jeanette did regarding the Corporation Council. You know, I thought that was exceedingly disrespectful. That's just my own person. I didn't even, I, even Rom never did anything like that. Daly never did in anything public. like that. Well, okay. <laughs> Valid point <laughs> in public, yeah. Uh, but then it brought all the issues like, you know, black women shouldn't be fighting. And that's kind of what's embedded. That's embedded in this essay that the Sun Times ran. It's like, well, black women can't have a political difference. I thought it was disrespectful for uh, Lori Lightfoot to get into Jeanette Taylor's face that way. But what's wrong with black women having a policy difference or dispute or difference? Do you understand what I'm saying, Stacey? Like, why? Because white supremacy and 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 patriarchy tells us that we are supposed to be one-dimensional, silent actors in this um, experience of life. And that we're supposed to, you know, demure and allow. But that's the larger narrative on why people do not appreciate the unionism of teachers. Like, we're 85% female. Society is mad when a woman tells you what, who, why, how, and when. And and that 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 supersedes color, right? Race, if you will. Um but that that's the bottom line. We still have a prescribed place. And so if white women have a prescribed place, you know damn well black women do. Sit down and shut up. If you are not a part of harmony. Right. I'm not supposed to tell you it hurts. I'm not supposed to say no. Think about this whole assault on my reproductive rights in 2022. I still can't tell you what what I I, I still can't say that I have agency over my uterus. Really? How? Why? Think about how the Trump administration rolled back the protections um, for female students, you know, through policies in the Department of Education. Um, with respect to sexual assault, it, you know, it, it's it, it. I am really, otherwise, I'm really, I'm always amazed at the inability of thoughtful people to not connect the dots. Mm-hmm. That the reopen schools, the the anti CRT, the um, anti abortion. All of those people come from the same place because they're funded by the same freak shows. It's the same. It is it is centralizing power in the most vanilla and um, one-dimensional space as possible. 
And the vast majority of those in society are excluded with that particular paradigm. And so to think through how we push back on that, the institutions that can have a voice, like Dr. King had a right. He knew the power of labor labor and civil rights, which the same could be same, said of women's rights, right? It is a funded institution. It is an institution of people who are rather uh, savvy and educated and clear and have opinions, right? You don't want that because that, interrupt status quo. Think about how one CEO from one airlines company single-handedly went to Capitol Hill, told them what didn't work, and a week later, (laughs) it was exactly what he said. It is exactly how he said it. And all of us have to grin and bear it, even if it doesn't make any sense even by Dr. Fauci's own admission, well, I think we might should probably be testing people out of a five-day quarantine. And they still ain't testing people out of a five-day quarantine because the test costs a lot of money and the companies don't want to absorb that cost because they want profit margin, a a, a larger profit margin. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? So, But you mad at me for asking for an N95? Yeah. All right. Uh, we're almost uh, out of time here, so I have to ask the mayor question of you. And uh, is that like my rite of passage right now? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because this is a very political town, the city of Chicago. You're kidding. I thought nothing was political in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Everything <laughs> is political in the city of Chicago. Everything is political in the city of Chicago. And, um, I, I'm going to give a shout out to my dear friend, Mays Jackson. And I heard you on his show uh, uh, was last week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Mays is always a pining Mays uh, uh, host uh, talk show uh, that everything the Chicago Teachers Un- Union does is a political act. And so that absolutely every uh, labor dispute, uh, every bargaining session is all about exerting power and showing uh, exercising power and showing that they're in charge with the ultimate goal of defeating the mayor. And Mays is not alone, Stacy, in that interpretation by any means. Uh, I've heard it from a lot, mo- many journalists subscribe to that. And, uh, so yeah, they do. But here's you know, the thing, Ben: the labor labor management. That's really the setup that they are missing here. The mayor of Chicago is our actual boss. They are in, the mayor of Chicago, whomever sits in that seat, is the boss of the public school workers. And I don't know what labor union doesn't struggle with the boss. It is the it is the relationship. It is the relationship. Now, you take the mayor out of that construct of boss and you give us an elected school board and a real superintendent that is disconnected from the mayor, then you won't hear us in the same way that you hear us now. Now, you will still hear us because our members 
have to live in the city of Chicago. And we believe that our members should be able to live in a place that respects their humanity. Our students live in the city of Chicago, and we believe that their humanity should be respected as well. So you're going to always hear us on that. But the fierceness of these fights are compounded by the fact that the mayor is our boss. And I think people miss that. I think people miss that fundamentally because I don't know how well, even as a history teacher, I don't know how well we teach the history of the labor movement for people to have a real ability to identify that in just everyday life. That's one. I think, too, Lori named us as her um, resistance. She said that we were going to run against her. I've never met a mayor or have studied one who has actually named the people or the person that she wants to run against her. So I think people should take a deep breath and one, see how the mayor sets up her ability to fail and blame it on other people before she fails. Right. She's done that throughout her entire um, uh, term so far is that she sets up the blame for her failure even before she fails. So that's one. Two, this is a labor management struggle that will persist in some way with any boss. So are we trying to, so when, cause we have charter contracts too. So when we go on strike there, what is that about? Is that about us trying to take over what? That's that, that is as straight up as you get. Yeah. We have the same struggles with some of our charter contracts. We fight them and struggle with those bosses in a very similar manner and no one says that that's about like being the king of the earth, right? No one says that's about flex and power. That's a labor management struggle in the same way. So I think that has to be defined because I keep hearing it. And, I, and, I, and as a teacher, <laughs> I'm like, yo, you're driving past the most obvious answer, buddy. Well, I think that if uh, you ascribe a political uh, motive uh, for everything that the teachers' union uh, demands, uh, that's a way of uh, marginalizing and minimal, minimalizing the demands that they're making. So if you say, well, the teachers only, uh, only voted uh, pass a resolution uh, to do uh, remote learning, that's only because they uh, want to embarrass the mayor then you detract from the issue of whether the schools are safe. So you're not going to have a conversation in the city of Chicago. Are the schools safe? You'll have a conversation of did the teachers union pick a fight with Lori because they don't like her. And similarly with the strike of 2019, do you follow what I'm saying? So it's a way. I follow exactly what you're saying. Yep. You know, it's, it's a way to shield her from the obvious criticism that she deserves. And here's the other thing. How do people forget that she fights everybody? Like <laughs> pick a week, pick a day of the week and, and see who she's having an argument with. You know, right now she's having a fight with the entire reform criminal justice system movement on on being dishonest about um, electronic monitoring. Right. 
she fights with Kim Fox about things she makes up. She fights with Tony Preckwinkle because she don't know she won. She fights with Judge Evans because he's county too, I guess. She fights with, you know, pick a member of the city council at any given time. She fights with uh, members of the General Assembly. She's fighting with the owner of the car dealership. Um, (laughs) You know, she's fighting with other merchants on the Magnificent Mile. She's fighting with 20,000 plus members of a union. Right. Not just Stacy or Jesse or Crystal or Maria, but she's fighting against all of those people as well. And so you have to ask yourself, who is the common denominator? I think Del Marie has said it on your show countless times. Um, Del Marie Cobb, mm-hmm. you know, she said it countless times that this individual, this leader doesn't understand leadership as a collaborative, transformative space that you actually can disagree with people and still figure out how to work together. You can actually figure out that there's 10 things on the board and you can disagree with three, but it doesn't mean that you can't do the other seven together. Mm. That's the dilemma of this leadership that we're dealing with is that there is there is no hope for compromise. Oh, I forgot the governor. You mm-hmm. saw the uh, text messages and, you know, another publication. Um, it, it's like everyone is wrong. And what I don't like about it is that folks just want to make this about us. And I'm like, boo, <laughs> pay attention. There's a common denominator and ain't the CTU. Look, we have endorse people who have won that treat us crappy, (laughs) you know? We have endorsed people who didn't win and their opponents won and they are best friends. You understand what I'm saying? This ain't about an endorsement because I can give you multiple examples of endorsements and relationships thereafter that are inconsistent with the line that she is attempting to promote. You know, her her PR people are going in, in, in a couple of different ways. One, um, black women just need to get along, right? That they outsource to their white supporters, right? Then there another line, which is difficult for them because Jesse tries not to say anything, even when she has said way more nasty, vile, disrespectful and low down gutter things to him. Now, I'm gonna let him tell his own story, but I'm gonna tell you it's a well-known story that she has retold to multiple people because Jesse never even told me about what she said to him. Other people told me and I had to go back and say, yo, is this true? And he said it is true, but I don't want to talk about it because it was just very uncomfortable for me. As a man in a room with a woman, there are just certain things that you don't want said. You understand what I'm saying, Ben? But like this this whole like unpacking of these um, struggles that we have in this city. They want to make it the responsibility of teachers, I guess, because teachers are nine times out of 10, the bigger people, because teachers do teach, you know, all of America how to take the high road, because teachers are responsible 
for providing social and emotional supports to our students. So it isn't that hard for me to believe that the general public thinks that we should be taking a high road. But how many times she going to say that we're holding people hostage? Mm. Like we ain't no damn terrorists. How many times is she going to characterize the needs of teachers, uh, uh, clerks, clinicians, paraprofessionals as something counter to the needs of humanity? And then you not push back at that. How is she going to continuously use this aggressive warlike language to to attack us and you don't say something else? You, you understand what I'm saying? No, people have to be more dimensional in their thinking and analysis of this moment because you might miss it. But this is the same society that is okay with uh, uh, January 6th. They are okay with it because if they wanted, what if they were not okay with January 6th, those freaks would be in prison right now. Every last one of them. Well, I do want to point out uh, on that line, uh, that there was uh, sedition charges uh, from Melissa Chief on January 6th. So uh, what we have is a split, a very divisive split uh, in this country between, uh, on that one issue. And I, don't, I, I we're run out of time, and we don't. Real have quick, time though, man, this Go is ahead. not this is not just 2022. Remember, there were a group of people south of the Mason Dixon who said that this country couldn't survive if black folks were free and and, and self-determined and they waged war on their own country and and they didn't suffer the fate that the enslaved Africans suffered more than the actual treasonous traitors suffered. So this is right in line with how America behaves. Yeah. Uh, and I'll point out, if you try to teach that history, uh, you, you run a, you run a file of the, political correct crowd from the other side and want to cancel your culture uh, if you try to teach this history of slavery or if you try to teach what the, the 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 roots of the civil war are and the current political climate uh stacy davis gates they're trying to pass laws that say well that is offensive to white children so we don't want to teach it in the high school so i you understand exactly uh what you're saying all right uh i'm going to close out with one thing uh to uh, uh show the the full roundedness of Stacey Davis Gates. Uh, She is a huge basketball fan. We did a whole show talking nothing about basketball. So we're going to move away from politics and uh, schools, et cetera. And in the closing moments, I'm going to ask you, have you uh, officially jumped on the Chicago Bulls bandwagon? Or are you one of those people that says, I need to see more evidence before I commit myself to the Chicago Bulls. First off, I've always been a Bulls fan, so ain't no wagon I can jump on. Now, I may have felt some type of way for a long time, but I ain't never not been a Bulls fan. Like, look, you can like the Lakers. You could like Miami. You could even kind of like the Cleveland because, you know, we're in the same conference division. And, look, You've never seen basketball played as brilliantly than in the 1990s under the Jordan Pippen era. And Ben, I met Scottie Pippen, by the way, um, back in December. 
OMG. I was just like, <laughs> and, I, and I know he thought I was a weirdo. He should have <laughs> thought I was weirdo if he didn't, because I was a weirdo. Uh, but talk about fangirling. Oh my God. It was like one of the best moments ever. But back to your point. So I'm not, I'm not on the wagon. I am a fan. I'm a Notre Dame fan through thick and thin, right? So, like, that. I'm still a Bears <laughs> fan through thick and thin. Like, it's it's just what it is. You know what I'm saying? Um, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. That being said, um, I'm very happy that my children, especially my son, who is a big Damar fan, um, is getting to like feel the energy of Chicago, like sports at its finest. And like he can have that memory because he watched um, Last Dance with uh, with with me and my husband, um, and he was just like looking at us like like totally tripping out about it. And so now he gets to you know kind of understand what that felt like. Uh, absolutely, Demar, uh, the Demar question, Demar DeRozan, uh, Demarvelous as uh, uh, Stacy King uh, likes to say, uh, is. Uh, he has put together quite a run. I think he's hit a, like a little bit of a, uh, a brick wall lately. You know, it's, I see that with players sometimes. They're going to streaks, and then it's sort of like it catches up to them, and they have to refuel. I'm hoping tonight they do that against the Warriors. But, Stacy, those, those here were so far afield. You probably were in the midst of negotiations and missed this, but uh, on New Year's Eve and a New Year's Day, he hit the buzzer beaters back-to-back, never been done before, back-to-back games, uh, one day after another in Indiana to beat the Pacers uh, and in um, D.C. to beat the Wizards. I just about lost my mind in, uh, in each one. He's special. He yes. is special, and he is not scared. Like, you love the fearlessness and the competitiveness that he – like, like you can have skill. Like, it's a requirement if you make it to that level. But what sets you apart is your, like, is, is, is your killer instinct. Your ability to face it and 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 complete it and like execute like the 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 win, you know he and he wants the ball at the end. That's the difference. He wants it. He wants it, man. Like I like that the competitiveness. I like the bravada. I, I like it. Even um, Caruso, right? You know, um, like all of it. it. Yo, we got a squad. Yes, and. Uh... I, I agree with you. I think there may be a little rough sp- patch here. There's a lot of injuries packed up. Uh, Alex Crusoe hasn't played for a while. So, you know, they may go through a little rough uh, patch here. Hey, uh, as long as we get this thing back together by April, I'm fine. Yes, that's exactly right. And you by the way, two CPS grads, two Chicago Yo, public school grads. that the best? Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing, too. Okay, you're going to end this on this. I promise. I'm going to stop talking. But, like, honestly – you know what I want CPS to do in its next phase? And, and people might find this wild as a teacher. I'm saying this. There are two things that I want the Chicago public schools to do that will change our lives is invest in its sports program from the elementary school to the middle school to the high school um, across the board. I don't give a damn from tennis to golf to basketball to football to soccer, all of it. I want like full investment. Right. And and fine arts. People forget about being a student 
and why you went to school. I don't care about remembering X minus the square root of <laughs> who cares. You you do that to get by. That's like punching a clock. You come to school to like practice and perform and compete and perfect and all of those things that we forget about homecoming and prom. I would love to see our school district invest in everything else that keeps kids in there for the thing that they need. You got to fool people into going to work. It's a check. When nobody go to work (laughs) associated with it. Yeah. Well, I'm with you 100% on that. Uh, That's been a fight for as long as I can remember. Uh, Getting the uh, public schools of Chicago to invest uh, in its kids with just a full round, a full curriculum. Mm-hmm. And not just in the classroom, but after school. And mm-hmm. I, I can go on and on about this. Like with the way they deal with basketball, uh, when when neighbors complain about the basketball courts, and they, so they take the basketball. This is such a Chicago thing. They take the basketball. No, it's such a black community thing. Oh, yeah. And my attitude is like, why don't you just set up a program, hire someone, pay them a good salary from the community who knows the different people in the community, making it like a important job and run a program. No, they go the other direction. They take everything down. You know, I, how do you have a sports town from hockey to basketball to football to soccer, right? Baseball. You got two baseball teams. How do you not have like a world class? You think about all that. Like you can tell an athlete by the way that they walk in the hallway. Do you know how many athletes who don't know their athletes are walking in these hallways right now? Who should be Olympians, who should be on like, you know, championship, like state championship, city championship level teams. Yo, and they're walking all around us. All of these metahumans are walking around us and no one knows that that is what they have because there is nothing to pull it out of them. Yeah. By the way, we said we were going to talk about sports. We ended up talking about politics, but it's right. It's the politics of sports, the negligence in the city. Uh, I. And I could go on and on. Uh, we spent, I spent so much time uh, in this century pleading with the city to build a, um, an indoor running facility to this point. Because Chicago has something called winter. Ever heard of it? <laughs> and uh, they got kids running in the hallways. I'm like, what? That makes no sense. I remember those days. Track practice yeah. starts in the hallway. Always. And you are, you know, training in the hallways and not on the track. I think by my senior year of high school, we had an indoor track in our new gym. You know, it was a smaller one, but it sure was better than the hallways. Better than the hallways. All right, Stacy, we're going to cut it there. Uh, it's time to end the conversation, get this show up so everybody can hear it. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me, putting up with my rants and railing. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, let's not let so much time go in between uh, your next appearance on the show, all right? Yes, Papa. <laughs> Papa. That's correct. All right. Thank you very much, Stacy Davis-Gates. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. Uh, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D., and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself Woo. a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody.
On behalf of the great state of Illinois, let me express my deepest gratitude.